Please do be seated. I was fascinated, I don't know if you noticed it, but I was fascinated by the name of the publisher of that last song. I, I promise you I was focusing on the words of the song as well, but I couldn't help noticing the name of the publisher or copyright holder or something was We Are Younger, We Are Faster, which I thought was absolutely fascinating, especially in view of the fact that we are, um, it's a fairly artificial link, isn't it? We are beginning to study, as you have heard from Nigel uh, this evening, um, a letter written by somebody who couldn't possibly describe himself as either younger or faster. Uh, More about that anon. But um, if you could be so kind as to turn back with me in a Bible to... The page after 1,224, if you follow my drift. And uh, I would like to pray over these words for us uh, as we revisit them. O word of God incarnate, O wisdom from on high. O truth unchanged, unchanging, O light of our dark sky, we praise you for the radiance which from this hallowed page, a lantern to our footsteps, shines on from age to age. Amen. So, 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. One, one, excuse me, one, two, two, five. I'll come on to the substance of this in a few moments' time. I'd like to begin by commenting on the style. Because it's an unusual style, very unusual style, the way this is written. There's the passage again just in case you want to look at it on the screen rather than down in your Bible. But there it is. And as we look at it, it doesn't look at all, this introduction, to any other letter in the New Testament, with the possible exception of the the one to the Hebrews. And certainly if you were to look at a more standard letter, let's say a letter by the Apostle Paul, I've just turned over to his second letter, Timothy, we've got... The name of the writer, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. We've got um, a recipient to Timothy, my dear son. And we've got a greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. And you've got any of those things in First John at all. It doesn't tell you who it's written by or from. It doesn't contain any greeting, even though he will later on address his readers in various ways. He sometimes calls them friends. He sometimes calls them dear children. Uh, But it's unusual from that point of view that we don't expect a letter in any age to begin quite like this. In fact, it doesn't really read much like a letter at all, not nearly as much as those by Paul. But there's something else about the style of this letter, including these introductory four verses. And that is that they are very repetitive, 
the whole letter is really very repetitive. Count the number of times he urges his readers to love one another, for example, and lots of other things. He keeps saying, we know this, we know, we know, and so on. It's very repetitive. It feels almost hesitant, as though he's feeling for his words. And um, some commentators call it convoluted. One even goes so far as to say, to uh, suggest that John is, uh, the writer of this letter, is being deliberately obscure. Well, that's stupid. (laughs) But what is going on? Um, Now, I've had a hunch for many years about this, but it needed to be confirmed by a woman to really put her finger on uh, what I think the answer is to this rather strange style, repetitive hesitant style, uh, and so on. There's a well-known, quite a well-known Bible teacher, a very fine Bible teacher, called Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. And he was discussing this letter with his wife many years ago, and he was making these points to her. And he sort of said, you know, repetitive and all that kind of stuff. And she said to him, well, this John, he was very old, you know? And, you know, I think that's it. He was very old. Um, we think all the evidence points to him being perhaps 90. And uh, what's the evidence uh, uh, within the letter? Well, the way he keeps referring to his readers um, uh, uh, and and listeners, my dear children, is a diminutive, the kind of address that only an old person would use of other adults and younger people too. And then the style itself. Uh, Mike read it quite properly in a pretty straightforward way. But if we just go back for a moment, you can, I can almost hear John dictating this letter. I can, I can see him gathering his little flock around him. And, uh, and they know he's coming towards the end of his life, and he knows that too. And they're saying to him, now tell us, John, one more time <laughs> what it is that really is on your mind and on your heart. And uh, somebody starts to take notes. And he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you regarding, concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal I can just hear him saying it in that kind of way he's, he's searching for his words he's not as fluent as he used to be his memory isn't so acute and are you thinking well whatever is God up to inspiring and putting in the Bible a letter by a man so old that his memory was starting to fail I think that, what a wonderful God to speaking not only to, but through such an old person. I think it's absolutely wonderful. And it reminds me to believe in both the divinity and the humanity of Scripture itself. That it's God, a God-breathed document, the entire Scripture. But also it comes with all the personalities and skills and gifts of the human authors. So many different kinds, including at least one very elderly man. I think of another 
elderly Christian, John Newson. You know John Newson uh, did many things in his life, including writing hymns and especially uh, well-known uh, for the hymn Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. He, when he reached his early 80s, his, he was failing in both body and mind. But then he said these wonderful words. My, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. That I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. That kind of godly old age, it seems to me, from scripture and from that kind of um, biography, has a, a, a way of focusing both the mind on the most important things and the heart on what you really love. As everything else starts to be less accessible, less memorable, and so on. I think of my own father. My own father was a lay preacher before me, and he had many long years of decline in body and in mind. Many long years of decline. And uh, his faculties, one by one, departed. Uh, pretty much the last faculty my father had was the faculty of prayer. And even in his um, very disabled state, uh, when he could have very little conversation, he could still pray a little bit, and his prayers would always start the same way. Repetition again. My father's prayers in later life would always begin, we thank thee, Heavenly Father. We thank thee, Heavenly Father. I think there's something very wonderful about a godly old age. There's a lovely um, image in one of the Psalms. I I can't think which one for the moment, but some of you may know it, which paints the picture of the path of a righteous person. And it says something like this. The path of the righteous person is like the sun, like the path of the sun, uh, in the course of the day. So expect the psalmist to say, well, the sun, the path of the righteous, like the sun that rises to midday and then declines gradually. But it doesn't say that at all. It says the path of the righteous is like the sun climbing higher and higher in the sky until noonday. And that is, in spirit, what all of us should be hoping and praying for, for ourselves and for one another. That although body and mind may decay and will decay, sooner or later, that our spirit, our walk with God, our concern for the people of God, our commitment for the truth of God, to the truth of God, remain brighter and grow brighter and brighter with each passing day and hour. That's a few comments about the style of these verses and in this letter. Now we come on to substance. Now there's nothing much more substantial than a brick wall is there except when the brick wall has a dirty great crack in it I don't want to bring bad memories back to any of you but I wonder if any of you have had uh, in or around your own home a weight bearing wall with that kind of damage to it and there'll be two thoughts that will be passing through your uh, mind in particular and uh, uh, one of which will be, if, if the weight-bearing wall, perhaps the outside wall, is cracked like that, what's happening underground? What's happening in the foundations? Okay? 
And the other thought is you hope that cracks in the wall won't lead to that kind of disaster. Now, it seems pretty clear as we go through, as we, as we look at 1 John uh, in its entirety, that various cracks were appearing, various problems were, uh, were occurring in the fellowship uh, that John was concerned about and was, and was writing to. And I think hints of, of those cracks uh, appear in various ways throughout this epistle. Let's have a quick uh, review of these. Uh, Here in chapter 1 and verse 6, John says, If we claim to have fellowship with God, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Whether some of those who John is either writing to or knows about associated with the fellowship who are now walking in darkness rather than in the light. He says in chapter 1 and verse 8, If we claim to be without sin, well, who would claim to be without sin? But no, there are. Uh, throughout the ages of the Christian church, there have been those who have made some kind of uh, idiotic claim to sinless perfection, or to think that sin really just isn't that important anymore. Chapter 2 and verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness, and John has a lot to say about love and hate. But do you see the hint here that there may well have been some that he's writing to? who are not full of love, but full of hate towards their brothers and sisters in Christ. Chapter 2 and verse 19, more explicit now, he says there are certain um, uh, people who have been members of the Christian fellowship who went out from us. Now I want to be careful with this because we know at Trinity there have been, especially in recent years, there have been those who have left this fellowship and joined others. This is not... (laughs) What, Paul, uh, what, uh, what John excuse me, is, is talking about. He's not talking about uh, people who have retained their Christian faith and witness and, uh, and faithfulness and so on and simply rejoined uh, uh, other Christian fellowships. He's talking about those who've left the Christian fellowship and departed the faith. It's quite clear that's what he's talking about. I'll make that clear in a few moments' time. But it's not simply about people transferring from one fellowship to another. Um, chapter 4 and verse 1 Uh, he says, many false prophets have gone out into the world, gone out from us into the world. So they're trying to to peddle their wares. They're trying to convert others to their false prophecies, their false teachings. Chapter 4, verse 2 and following. Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. And then I'm just going to cheat by going on to a clearer statement of this in John's second letter in verse 7. He talks about deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. And there in terms of doctrine is probably the heart of the problem. Putting these things together, especially the last two, we seem to have an early version of what has become known as Gnosticism. That's a Greek word that crops up in some English terms, especially medical terminology like diagnosis or prognosis and so on. Same kind of, and it has to do with knowledge. But the Gnostics, and they really flourished after um, the the writing of this letter, but we think that many of the ideas were around at the time. Um, 
it makes sense um, when we look at the problems that John is addressing to, re- to view these as an early form of Gnosticism because Gnosticism is characterized more than anything else by what we call dualism, a split between matter and spirit. Gnosticism, dualism says matter, the physical world is evil but, this, but spirit is good. And that idea has all kinds of repercussions, all kinds of practical implications for Christian life and witness and so on, both then and now. So, for example, if matter, the physical world, is evil, it becomes impossible to believe in an incarnation, that God would become flesh. Why would God become flesh if flesh, the physical matter, is evil? God wouldn't do that. So you see, John, uh, the people, some of the people that John is writing about were denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. And so that, now I'm going to miss some of those other words out. Let's, let's, let's progress. So we have cracks appearing inside and outside the fellowship this elderly Christian apostle, this is the Apostle John in old age, um, thinking now only of the essential truths of the Christian faith and his love for his Lord and his love for those who belong to his Lord is now saying, beginning by saying, so let's go back to the foundations that we need to underpin and to correct or prevent the cracks from getting any worse. So what kind of checking do we have? So with the theme, I think you'll agree, of this introduction to the letter is it's all about the word of life. We proclaim concerning the word of life. Let's take that as our theme and see what John has to say about it. First of all, John wants to emphasize that the word of life is eternal. It was from the beginning, the eternal life, which was with the Father. Just pause on that for a moment. We tend to think of eternal life as something that God gives, you know, something we receive, eternal life. But here the meaning is slightly different. The eternal life, which was with the Father, is a person. Jesus is the eternal life. And the eternal life appeared. Verse 2, and again repeated at the end of verse 2, appeared to us. God does not remain hidden. God is not playing hide-and-seek with you. God wants to be known. God wants to be seen. So God appears in the flesh. And John says he appeared to us. And John says we, I think he's speaking on behalf of the apostles in particular, we have seen and heard and touched the word of life. Think of that. This is about 60 years after he had walked and talked with Jesus Christ in the flesh. He's looking back over 60 years and saying, I remember that. I saw his miracles. I heard his teaching. I had the opportunity to touch his flesh. Before his death and after his resurrection. 
Do you see the physicality of this coming across? It really happened in space and time. Seen, heard and touched. Fourthly, proclaimed, not kept a secret. One of the problems with Gnosticism was it was a secret knowledge that only elite, the elite could aspire to. But no, John is saying, we didn't keep it a secret. It isn't just for some first-class division of super-spiritual people. It is proclaimed to all, and all may know and believe, understand. We testify to it, we proclaim it, uh, proclaim it to you. Fifthly, all of this leads to fellowship. Now, fellowship is, to our ears, a very religious term, isn't it? It's not really used very much at all outside Christian circles, I guess. But it was not a particularly religious term in those days. It has perhaps three connotations, the, underli- the word uh, translated fellowship. It has to do with partnership. So it'd be used even in a business partnership. There's a fascinating little comment in um, uh, the fifth chapter of Luke's Gospel where John, this John, and his brother James, both sons of Debedee, are described as partners with Simon Peter in Zebedee's fishing business. And the word partner is the same root, same word being, being used there. Partner, business partner, fellowship. Business partners have fellowship with one another. The second connotation of this word, if the first is partnership, has to do with sharing. So Paul quite often talks about uh, a, 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 a fellowship of sharing when he talks about Christians who have sharing with those who have not, uh, relieving uh, the, the poor, the needy, uh, those who are suffering from famine. When Christians give their, 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 share their, their money with, uh, and good things with, with other people, they are having fellowship with them. So it's uh, partnership, it's sharing. And the third idea about this term fellowship has to do with relationship, togetherness. And maybe that's the most prominent here. Uh, but maybe all three. We are partners with, we share with, share with and share in, and we are to work together with the Father and the Son and with one another. And all of this leads to joy. We write this, says John, to make our joy complete. Not my joy or your joy, but our joy. It's as though, take a mother and her baby. They share in joy together. The mother is happy when the baby is happy and vice versa. Same with lovers. Your business is to make share in one another's joy and happiness. Not you make me happy, but we make one another happy. So what about our house? There are, associated with Holy Trinity, many different activities and ministries. Evangelism, prayer, giving, administration, hospitality, pastoral care, social action, teaching, and many many others. Apologies if I left yours out. But all of these that are above the surface need firm foundations, holding them up. We may not constantly be inspecting those foundations, but it's certainly good to do from time to time. Certainly when when somebody new moves into a house, there need to be some questions about what the foundation's like, 
And I guess it's a bit the same when a church is about to welcome a new incumbent. What are your foundations like? Are they firm? Are they holding up? Are they really supporting all your various activities and ministries? So checking our foundations, three questions to conclude. Firstly, how much confidence do we have in the eyewitness testimony of the apostles? John, looking back over 60 years, insists that he has heard and seen and touched. Do we believe him? Apparently, about 25% of the population think that Jesus Christ was probably some kind of mythical figure, and and that percentage is higher among young people. Let's take John's testimony seriously and believe him when he says, I heard, I saw, I touched, when we read the, the four Gospels. How important to us is the incarnation, the enfleshment, the God becoming flesh doctrine of the Christian church, the incarnation of the Son of God. We rightly remind ourselves very frequently of the importance of the cross of Christ and his resurrection. But John here is emphasizing the incarnation, that God came down from earth and became a human being like you and me. God loves human flesh. He loves the physical. He loves matter. He made it. And he is in the process of redeeming it. Don't ever imagine that you can summarize the Christian idea of salvation by saying, well, salvation is all about going, going to heaven when I die. No, it's more, much more than that. Uh, the Christian's greatest hope is not going to heaven when I die, There is something wonderful when the Christian dies, being with the Lord, which is far better. But the Christian's final and greatest hope is for a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness, as Peter says in one of his letters. So let's not despise for a moment the physical. And let us strive, not simply to escape this world as the Gnostics wanted to, but to live in the world, while we're in the world, with every fibre that we have, which God, and with every breath that God gives us. And what joy do we experience in working together with the Father and the Son and with one another? What joy do we have in sharing with one another? I mentioned the fellowship, the joy that a mother and baby have. There are tears as well in that relationship. I mentioned too briefly the, the, the joy that a pair, uh, two lovers will have in each other's company. There may well be tears there too. But the joy far outweighs the tears. And so it is, or so it should be, in the Christian fellowship. We have our cracks, we have our, our tears, we have our tensions. But working together in the gospel, in the work of the gospel, uh, with the strength of the Holy Spirit and with our belief in Christ, gives unspeakable joy as we work together. The question is sometimes asked, yeah, but there's so many problems with the church, isn't there? Can I be a Christian without going to church? And the answer to that is yes, you can be a Christian without without going to church, but it would be like being an author without any readers. It would be like being a footballer without any team to play for. It would be like being a musician without anybody to play for. It would be like being a student without any teacher or a teacher without any students. 
It's conceivable to be a Christian without going to church, but you certainly cannot be a Christian without belonging to the church because that's the way God has designed it. Our fellowship is with God and his son and with one another. Leave with my, a favourite quote of mine um, about on, the, on this question of belonging to Christ and his church. I forget who said it, but it goes something like this. There is no way of belonging to Christ except by also belonging to that extraordinary ragbag of saints and fatheads that make up the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. As John would say many times later on, brethren, let us love one another. Children, let us love one another. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the gracious and truthful words of this elderly man. And we pray that we might be faithful both to the truth, but also immersed and engrossed in the love which he had and which he longed for all his readers to have. Love for and fellowship with you and your dear son. And then love for and fellowship with one another. Amen.